0: The following presentation was recorded at the Center for Christian Study in Charlottesville, Virginia. All audio rights are reserved and protected by international copyright. No part of this presentation may be reproduced in any form without the written permission by University Christian Ministries, Incorporated. The lecturer holds publication rights to all material. For more information, contact the Center for Christian Study at 434-817-1050. From the outset, why I think that it's worth spending at least six hours. You'll spend a lot more than that if you actually start reading his works, which leads us actually to the first, um, the first reason. NTW is an extremely prolific scholar who writes faster than you can read. Um, that might seem to be a disincentive. Well, if he writes faster than I can read, why should I even start? Uh, well, maybe you will never catch up with his writing and are just some of his books. But um, even if you don't catch up with his writing, hopefully this series beginning tonight will provide a bit of an overview, a bit of a map to help us understand Tom Wright and his thought. And so if you do choose to read some or all of these books, or at least some percentage of these books, um, maybe you'll have a little bit of a head start. So um, he's an extremely prolific scholar. His writing is invariably fresh and insightful. He's fun to read. He's one of those lucid British Theologians, kind of like C.S. Lewis, unlike the turgid, hard to read, obscure German theologians. He's fun to read, but that can be very deceptive because you pick up one of his books, one of his devotional books, you read it, it goes so well, you chuckle along the way, and then you realize at the end, wait a minute, there's some, um, there's some under- underwater obstacles or some icebergs here, and I'm not, something's going on below the surface that I'm not getting. I'm hoping one of the things that we'll do is sort of dive below the surface and um, explain how this links up with this and Tom Wright's thought. He's a a good writer, but um, there's there's, there's some complications in his theology that we'll want to unpack a little bit. For N.T.W., and by the way, get used to that, um, everyone calls him N.T.W. They don't want to say N.T. Wright, so if you're writing it, N.T.W., is you're in the know if you know that N.T.W. stands for N.T. Wright. The original historical context is determinative for the meaning of the text. I mention this because... What's that? Like Scalia. Like Scalia? Yeah, exactly. So he, he's, he's actually a little, uh, he's, he's very Protestant in this way, but um, as you'll see, he's a little bit controversial. For Tom Wright, if the original historical context is at variance with the church history context, well, so much the worse for the church history context, so much the worse for tradition. And that's where the controversy comes in. We'll see that in just a minute. But he's very rigorous about interpreting the biblical text, in this case Paul, in light of its original historical context. What did it mean to the people who first wrote and the the people who first heard these writings uh, in the first century? And we'll get more of a sense of that as we go along. And then my fourth point on this page. He writes for the heart as well as for the head. You know, on the one hand, you've got these enormous tomes like the New Testament, the people of God, which is the first of this magnum opus that he's writing. And then you've got Jesus and the victory of God. And then this, which is is huge and rightly so, the resurrection of the Son of God. Well, let me just to give you a sense of the weight. Okay, you've got scholarly works like this, which are sort of the top in the field on the one hand. But then on the other hand, you've got some great devotional writings like one of my favorites, The Crown and the Fire. Uh, he's one of those rare people who can write at the top of his field in the academy and yet also write on a fairly popular level, somewhat deceptive, as I said, given the complexities underneath the surface, but write in a way that really is to encourage uh, the church and to encourage the people of God. It's one of the things I really appreciate about him. He has that rare combination of talents. He's the first, as I said, a first rank scholar and churchman with increasing influence in both realms. Here's the uh, web page for um, Bishop Tom, who is, uh, who is the Bishop of Durham, which, as I understand it, is the fourth-ranking uh, bishopric in, um, in Anglicanism. And uh, so here's his, here's his page called Bishop Tom with Pastoral Responsibilities. Oh, and um, here I'm highlighting this for you. This is the N.T. Wright page. So there's an entire unofficial web page devoted to him and to all of his writings. And again, you just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. The list of his writings is longer than a lot of our writings. So, um, more, again, plenty there. to. to the, oh, that's the N.T. Wright page. You can Google N.T. Wright and you'll find it. And here's, just to give you a sense, there's the Durham Cathedral. And that web page... And before this, he was the canon theologian canon theologian at Westminster Abbey, and before that, he was the, the dean of Lichfield Cathedral, and was in the academy um, at McGill and Oxford for some years before that. So he's at the top of his game both uh, in the church and in the academy these days. And here's that N.T. Wright page that I highlighted just a little bit a little bit ago. If, if you want to be reading things for this course, several people have asked me whether or not I have a list of readings. Um, go to this page. This is a good place to start. Now, if you want, afterwards, you can come up and look at these books. I've got a few of his main books up here, and if you actually want to feel the book and flip through it and so forth, feel free to. And some of this stuff, a lot of it is actually in the Splinterlight Bookstore. But um, the best place to start probably is here on the web. There's lots of stuff available in PDF and otherwise. Oh, there's the Write Said email group that I just highlighted. Okay, I've been lurking on this group for the past two months or so. So I signed up, you know. I don't know how people find the time to participate in these groups. Is that all they do? Um, Because it's just a running conversation, and I think I'm about 150 emails behind at the moment, which happens really fast. But if you want to sort of get into the conversation, it's not a bad thing to do. Join the right said email group. You have to introduce yourself to the 350 people that are actually in this group or so and then if you want to you can just read the emails as they come in and eventually you'll get inside the conversation and kind of see where, where the issues are so it's, it's a helpful way to get educated pretty quickly on some of the nuances um, it's, it's helped me along oh and I might at some point in the next week or two I, at one point I did venture in and start throwing a few punches and and a little bit of a volley there so maybe maybe next week when we talk about The role of um, Paul in the law, according to Tom Wright. I'll read you a few choice excerpts from uh, from that little conversation, Uh, which leads to this. He has been dogged by controversy. As as um, as admirable as as he is in many respects, I guess not unnaturally. He's been a very controversial figure. I've already mentioned why in some respects. Again, he's not all that concerned about tradition. Anglican, though he is, he is um, very much concerned with interpreting the Bible in its original historical context, which leads him to some interesting conclusions, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. I guess I should say for the record that Tom Wright has been hugely influential on me. Um, Skip mentioned that long, boring title that I gave to my dissertation, (laughs) um, which actually... Um, I gave it that title so that uh, virtually every keyword associated with my dissertation is in the title. <laughs> but um, but uh, that was hugely influenced by Tom Wright and by reading a book of his, The Climax of the Covenant, back in the early 90s. So um, even though I never studied with him, I consider him to be one of my doctor fathers. He certainly had a huge influence on, on me, for which I am grateful. But there are some ways in which I disagree with him, and we'll unpack that a, a bit as we go along. Here's the Paul page, just to show you some of the stuff online, that a lot of the controversy, where a lot of the controversy rages. And I'll highlight this first paragraph here. This is, this is talking about a guy, an Australian bishop, um, Paul Barnett, who is a, ta- a New Testament scholar, who placed an article on his website entitled, Why Right is Wrong. By the way, if, if you do too much into right stuff, it's, it's sort of de rigueur to have um, cheesy puns on his name. And I, I'll make a few of that as we go along, just, to, just so that that's what you do. Uh, why Right is Wrong or Tom Wright and the New Perspective. We'll talk a little bit about Tom Wright's connection to this thing called the New Perspective on Paul and why it's so immensely controversial. Well, here's an Australian bishop who's objecting to that. So, it's, um, with an Anglicanism, there's some debate. Here's another webpage, monogism, monergism.com. Um, again, if you want to make a note of that, that would be a good thing, to another good place with lots of articles and responses back and forth. If you want to get inside the controversy, there are lots of articles on this website about that. I can't scroll down, but if you did, you would see a, a whole raft of them. And then here, and a website set up by a PCA church with the explicit motivation to, to um, combat uh, the new perspective on Paul. Tom Wright, the Federal Vision, Norman Shepard. We won't talk about all of these guys, but later on in this uh, series, I will talk about what they have in common with Tom Wright. There, there's, there, they, they have some commonalities, the new perspective on Paul, and something called monocovenantalism. There's our $10 word for the evening. Um, and Actually, I'll talk about that next week. I'm going to explain to you what traditional Reformed theology talks about in terms of the covenants, and then contrast that with, with Tom Wright mainly, but really a whole bunch of other people. It's Tom Wright, it's another one of my hugely influential teachers um, on me, Scott Hafeman. John Piper still to some extent, although he's distancing, distancing himself from it. Tom Schreiner on the Baptist side of things, and then a whole bunch of um, um, people in the PCA. Doug Wilson and Peter Lighthart and others who are associated with this federal vision. So, if you want to understand one of the main controversies in the evangelical church today, um, this this series on Tom Wright will provide a bit of a window into that. And next week I intend to, on the one hand, explain the traditional position in Reformed theology with respect to Christ and the covenants, and then show where this huge new perspective differs from that, with a handy-dandy chart and everything. That is uh, www.paulperspective.com. Okay, I couldn't resist. NTW is a VIP in the MPP. Um Okay, NTW stands for what? Tom, right. A uh, very important person in the MPP. Okay, who's in the know? What's the MPP? The new perspective on Paul. Uh, we love abbreviations. And so, yeah, he's... Um, He's huge in this new perspective on Paul, and as a result, he is is himself an emerging storm center in Reformed circles uh, in in Anglicanism, but also especially in the PCA. He's a mono-covenantalist. More on that next week. He questions the Reformed understanding of imputation. This has been considered to be one of the key Reformed Protestant doctrines, the imputation of Christ's alien righteousness to us. He questions that. We'll need to ask why and then talk about how he, how he formulates um, our union with Christ. And he defines, and this is in the title of the course, defines justification in a very non-traditional manner. That's the nice way of putting it. There are places on the web that put it in a much much more vitriolic sort of way. Uh, More like this. He has been accused of undermining Protestant theology in a way which threatens the Reformation and indeed the very truth of the gospel. So here's a a letter. Um, Pastoral letter in summary from the Presbytery of the Mississippi Valley. This came out less than two months ago. So this is fresh. This is the kind of controversy that is emerging because of Tom Wright. We believe, and this is supposed to set the stage for... For the PCA as a whole, that's what they're hoping will happen, this Presbytery. We believe that the clarity of the gospel, the freeness of grace and justification, and the assurance of the believer are all undermined by the formulations of the NPP. What's that? New perspective on Paul. NTW, Tom Wright. NS, Norman Shepherd, And AAT slash FV, the Auburn Avenue Theology slash Federal Vision. And we'll talk a little bit about what they have in common, mostly next week. No greater tragedy could befall the PCA today than to compromise the lucidity of her preaching of the glorious gospel of grace. Yet that is, we fear, precisely what we are facing. And notice that NTW is right up here, lumped in with the rest of them. And we'll need to ask ourselves whether that's fair or not, and, and why, why he has that kind of accusation from, from the Presbyterian Church of America. So that's why I think that we should spend six hours together learning about Tom Wright, not only because he's important in his own right, but because he does provide a window into some of the most important theological discussions that are going on. Our understanding of God, our understanding of salvation, our understanding of the church. If you want to be on the inside of some of these most important discussions and conversations, um, looking at Tom Wright is a good way to do that. Okay, Here's an overview of the series. Uh, There are four weeks. This is the first, and this is pretty much how I'm planning to go about it. I love to tell the story, the narrative substructure of Paul's theology. Tonight, I'm going to provide a map. This this, this sort of hit me with a flash. It was like Isaac Newton and the apple falling from the tree. Um, About three or four months ago, I was like, what is it? What's the key that unlocks his theology and um, I had read and reread and then reread again and again and again, his little book what Pain- what Saint Paul really said what's that right here, and I realized that what i 'm about to show you provides the sort of key to the structure of this book and virtually everything else he does if he 's talking about Paul. He's got a little pattern in his mind. And he, he explicates it in different ways, articulates it in different ways. And yet I think this is, this is the pattern. Once you have this pattern, I think you'll understand his thought. Or at least the, the broad contours of his thought. Next week, Adam, Israel, servant, Christ. Does covenant theology get it right? Okay, there's my cheesy pun, which I felt that I needed to do. Um, next week is going to be a lot of fun. Because... Um, based on the Westminster Confession, and not just that, but based on some reading in in Reformed theology, generally speaking, including some Anglican stuff from the 17th century and afterward, um, I've come up with a chart that will outline how covenant theology understands the relationship between Christ and Adam and the two covenants that they represent, something called bicovenantalism. explain where original sin fits in, where substitutionary atonement and justification by faith fit in, explain all of that and then contrast that with, the new, with this new perspective, the one represented by Tom Wright and all of these other people. So next week, in some ways, we're going to be getting at the heart of the debate within um, Reformed theology. To whom it belongs, this is the third week, the imputed or maybe disputed righteousness of God. Many of us will be familiar with the uh, the notion that it's the righteousness of Christ or the righteousness of God that's imputed to us. That God takes his own righteousness or that of Christ and gives it to us though it doesn't belong to us. And that that then becomes the um, the ground of our salvation. Tom Wright has a very different understanding of how the righteousness of God, the kaiosune theu in the Greek, how that works in Paul. So we'll go through those passages and talk about imputation. Hopefully this will function then not just as a primer for Tom Wright, but a primer in basic Reformed theology. So when you get done this, you'll have a sense of Reformed theology, traditionally speaking, and then Tom Wright. And maybe there'll be a bit of a reciprocal relationship. We'll understand both of them through this, this interaction between the two that I intend to further in this class. And then lastly, we'll get to what is the heart of this class after all these weeks of preparation. The importance of definition, righteousness, justification, faith, and works. And we'll talk about the specific issue of, of Tom Wright's redefinition of righteousness and what that means for his doctrine of justification. But I really don't think you can understand his doctrine of justification without understanding the overall map of his thought, federal theology, um, imputation, and then we'll get to justification. So that's that's where we're heading. And now, to tell the story. So what's the story? <coughs> And here's the story. In one sentence, I think that we can actually express Tom Wright's understanding of Paul's theology. And here's the sentence. It's going to be a subject, a verb, and a purpose clause. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. That's it. That sums it up. (laughs) Now we've got an hour to unpack this. And actually, it'll be a quick hour, um, because there's a lot to unpack. But that sums up his understanding, not only of Tom Wright's theology, but of the kind of theology of Palestinian Judaism that Tom Wright was familiar with and and was himself developing. Um, What I'm going to do, just so you'll know, the method to my madness. I'm going to explain this briefly now, and then I'm going to explain it in more detail, and then I'm going to explain it in even more detail. So it's going to be a bit of a spiraling process. So if you don't get it the first time through, don't think, oh, I better ask my question We're moving on. Actually, I'm going to explain it in more depth and then in more depth. That's the way I learned, so that's the way we're doing it. Um, Sort of a spiraling notion here of these three dimensions. Here's a great quote from his commentary on Romans, which sums it up. What Israel has always been tempted to forget, from Paul's point of view, is that the God who made the covenant with Abraham is the creator of the whole world And that the covenant was put in place precisely in order that through Israel God might address the whole world. And there it is. If you you read Tom Wright, you'll see this again and again. He's articulating this vision again and again. The creator God. God, the creator of the whole world, chose Israel. God who made the covenant with Abraham. And something that we'll see again and again is this close connection in Tom Wright's thought, which he holds in common with a number of other folks, between the election of Israel and the covenant. In fact, election and covenant are almost synonymous in Tom Wright, plenty of other people, including E.P. Sanders, but, but uh, election and covenant. So the Creator God chose Israel, made the covenant with Abraham for a distinct purpose, in order that through Israel, God might address the whole world. So that sums, that sums up in a larger sentence this storyline that I've that I've put up at the top there. It was screwed to need people. Best, yeah, yeah. So so yeah. So exactly, what's be what's being assumed here? Thank you for saying that. What's being assumed here, obviously, is the fall. So you've got you know most most of us are familiar with those those three uh, or those four basic um, hooks. For theology, creation, fall, redemption and restoration, he certainly certainly would affirm all of that. So, the creator God, there's creation, parentheses, implied because of the fall, there's the fall, chose Israel, this is on the way to redemption, to be a blessing to the entire world. So, this will be redemption and then ultimately the restoration of all of God's good creation purposes in and through Israel and ultimately the representative of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. So yeah thank you for for making that explicit that's important. He sums it up in three words sometimes monotheism election and eschatology. The creator god his tagline for that is monotheism. Chose Israel tagline for that is election to be a blessing to the world eschatology. So whenever he's talking about Paul's theology quite often he'll organize his thought in terms of monotheism election and eschatology even if he doesn't use those words. So if you go in looking for that, M-E-E, monotheism, election, eschatology, you'll see that he's very consistent. Whenever he gives a talk on Pauline theology, he invariably uses this kind of structure. With the help of the law, chose Israel to be a blessing to the world with the help of the law, something called covenantal gnomism. Covenantal gnomism is... Um, one of those words which has been absolutely huge in Pauline studies for what? 30 years now? Almost 30 years? Back in the late 70's, I think it was 1977 a guy named E.P. Sanders started a revolution in Pauline studies by writing this book Paul and Palestinian Judaism and in Paul and Palestinian Judaism he argued that Palestinian Judaism was not legalistic that that's New Testament scholars, and especially Lutheran New Testament scholars, had been slandering Jews for hundreds of years. And they had been reading, especially Protestant and Lutheran um, New Testament scholars, had been reading their controversy with Catholicism into Paul's um, controversy with Judaism. That it was all about works and so forth. And he argued that, no, 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 no. Uh, based on the, the rabbinic writings, and based on Qumran, and based on all of these other writings, that no, it wasn't legalistic. That the pattern of religion for Palestinian Judaism was something he called covenantal nomism, which is a fancy way of saying that that when you're born, you're born into the covenant election based purely upon the grace of God. There's nothing you did to get into the covenant. So it's purely based upon the grace of God. And that once you're in the covenant, because of election and covenant, and there's that connection between the two words I was telling you about, once you're in the covenant because of God's choice and because of His sovereign grace, then the way that you stay in the covenant is simply by obedience. And not even, not even perfect obedience, just a general intention to obey um, you're sort of in the covenant by default unless you do something really bad and intentionally try to somehow subvert the covenant. Then you're out. That's E.P. That's, um, that's e. Sanders and, and his understanding of the pattern of religion for Judaism. So his point was it's not legalistic. It's all about God's grace. You're born into the covenant, and then all you have to do is, is, is maintain your place in the covenant. Not only just by legalistic obedience. There's none of that. Just by obeying. And if you mess up, then you just then, then you repent and you go offer sacrifice. You know, and so it's, it's it's not about some sort of notion of legalism. That would be from this from this understanding. That would be retrojecting a later debate between Protestants and Catholics into Paul's. Paul's disagreements with Judaism. Okay? So this covenantal gnomism is hugely influential on Tom Wright. He disagrees with this guy, E.P. Sanders, in a lot of ways. But one thing that he accepts is this whole notion of covenantal gnomism. That is, that the Jews were not legalistic. They weren't believing that they were earning their salvation. They weren't characterized by works of righteousness. But they were—they they had a strong notion of God's grace. And then... Once they're once they're in, this nomism nomos is simply the Greek for law. So once you're in the covenant, that comes first. Then the law becomes the way that you simply maintain your covenantal status. But but the requirements aren't really that difficult. Yeah. Was that did they mean that from like the beginning in terms of like the Catholic view as in like once you're baptized into the faith that you are a part of that, or did you have to like become entered into that? Oh, no, yeah, it's, it, um, it, it's what you described, that once, once, you, um, once you're born into it, you're in it, by default. Unless you choose in some way to, to remove yourself from it, you're in it. And that just means that you basically obey, and that when you mess up, you, you do what you're supposed to do. You repent and offer the, offer the necessary sacrifices. This, this, this thesis hit um, New Testament studies uh, and took it by storm, and Tom Wright was one of the very earliest, if not the earliest certainly one of the very earliest New Testament scholars to immediately agree with this, and has characterized his thought ever since. already you can see next week we 'll do this at length, but already you can see how this might lead to a kind of mono covenantalism mono means one covenantalism, in other words, that what we have in Judaism. Is very similar to what we have in Christianity—a same pattern of thought. That is a gracious covenant that requires a, a level of obedience, but the pattern would be the same. In other words, what you have in the Old Testament is not legalistic; what you have in the New Testament is not legalistic. They're simply operating according to pretty much the same mode. That's mono-covenantalism—that you don't have a covenant covenant of works in the Old Testament, but that they're all is all a covenant of grace. And obviously, this this notion of covenantal nomism can lay lay the foundation for that. More on that next week, maybe just a little bit of a teaser. But yeah, George. The sacrifices that end applying to now would be what? The sacrifices of excuse me, in other words, I can see the Jewish sacrifices, but what's the Christian sacrifice they're talking about? Did I miss something that he said? No No, we haven't gotten that far. It's, it's probably just probably just best to wait best to wait on that one. But but the point is is that what they would be objecting to is, is playing off Christianity over against Judaism as if Judaism is the foil that 's bad religion. this is good religion and these days if you if you go into New Testament scholarly circles and, and start talking about a covenant of works um, you 're probably going to get booed down i mean it's, it's a hard it 's a hard position to maintain these days now i 'm going to actually try to maintain that position but uh, but you, you will get you'll get booed down in a lot of cases because the reigning paradigm now is that um, is this of covenant nomism that it was really a very gracious very gracious covenant without any sort of legalism. Okay. So he said he said that the view, is basically, like like say Calvin or Luther would conceive, it was anachronistic and reading back like Pelagius or whatever back at the Jews. Yeah, pre- precisely what a number of people have said and. From all over the New Perspective, um, but even before that, what what they've said is basically um, Martin Luther read Paul as if Paul were Martin Luther. And he read Judaism of Paul's time as if that were the Catholic Church. And as if Paul's problem with Judaism was his own problem with Catholicism. That it was works-based, legalistic, works-righteousness, all that. And what the New Perspective says is that's a false reading of Paul. Now, we can't go into that right now. That's just going to have to wait. That's a little bit of a teaser, but that's, that's where we're heading with this. And we'll need to look and see whether there's really any Pauline warrant for believing in a, a covenant of works, or really whether it is a retrojection of, of, of Luther's own problems into, into his interpretation of Paul. the terminology, you talking about covenant of works. You're about covenant of works in the garden, or are you saying that the covenant of works in Decalogue is a covenant of works, i.e. merit principle? Okay, um, quick answer and then we'll elaborate next week because this could go into a, a huge discussion. Usually when we say covenant of works, we mean, yes, a covenant of works in the garden in Reformed theology and then some aspect of, an, as, an aspect of a works principle in the Mosaic Covenant as well. But that would be secondary to the covenant of grace. And again, if that's confusing, just let it be an encouragement to come next week and all will be revealed. Okay. Um, Really, I mean, we're gonna have. I'm gonna have to give you the chart and explain everything next week. So, um, a lot of issues. But, but for now, let's do the map to to the rest of his, um, the rest of his thought on Paul. Once again, moving through. This is a direct quote. Just to kind of run through it again. Monotheism. There is one true God. The one true God of all the world. Israel is the people of this one God. Of this one true God. That's election. At eschatology, and there is one future for all the world—a future not very far away now—in which the true God will reveal Himself, defeat evil, and rescue His people. We already saw the summary from the commentary in Romans. This is a summary from what Saint Paul really said, which is sort of until he has his big scholarly tome on Paul. This is our main thing that we have to go from. This is Paul's statement. This, no, it's not in Scripture. But is that his understanding of Paul? Is that the law of Paul? Yes. Well, let me back back off that. This is not only Paul's conception, according to Wright. This is this is the conception in 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 the part of Palestinian Judaism to which Paul belonged. So the circles in which he ran all believe this. Now, were there sects of Jews that had a different understanding? I'm sure there were, but but um, he would say this is the pattern of religion for Judaism in general. We are there's one true God, monotheism. We are his people. And God will one day vindicate his people. In fact, I think that's, that's, a, that's a broad enough statement that virtually any Jew in the first century would agree to that. Now, as we'll see, Paul, Paul, according to Wright, will take each one of these and redefine it. And the question is how he redefines monotheism, how he redefines election, and how he redefines eschatology. But this is what Paul was working with. This is the summary of Jewish theology in the first century. Now, how does he redefine it? Okay, well, this is the pattern of the storyline of Paul's thought prior to his conversion. This is what I just said. And again, here's my run-through again, elaborating on the point a few times. The first point, monotheism, was summed up in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shema being the Hebrew word for hear. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And this is what Tom Wright says about it. Jewish monotheism in this period was not an inner analysis of the being of the one true God. In other words, that when, when Jews in the first century said there is only one God, they weren't thinking as opposed to one in three or three in one. They, they, they had no thought of opposing some sort of notion of a trinity. That, was, that wasn't on the map. Uh, actually there were speculations about the inner being of God, but monotheism in no way was intended to confront those sorts of speculations about the inner being of God. What it was intended to do, and I think Tom writes exactly right on this, was on the one hand, it asserted that the one God, the God of Israel, was the only God of the whole world. There's not a pantheon, and he's just one of many. And that the one true God would one day decisively defeat these pagan gods and their powers and vindicate Israel as his true people. Monotheism, in short, was a fighting doctrine. Notice even when he's discussing monotheism, he does the monotheism election and eschatology. God of Israel was the only one true God of the whole world. One day he would decisively defeat these pagan powers, that's eschatology, and vindicate Israel, that's election. Every, again and again. You see in Tom Wright, those things coming out. Evil would be Satan, too. And the, 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 the evil gods would do it. I mean, the pagan gods. Have... Sure. Sure. So the, so the pagan gods would be, for for a Jew, they would be identified as, um, yeah, evil um, evil angels, fallen angels. As, as, as happens, for example, in Daniel 10, where you have the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece. So, you know... The people can worship them as gods. Indeed, Paul does the same thing in First Corinthians ten, where you know, you can go up and worship those gods but all they are is demons. Yeah. Well, he's not getting it out of Shema. He's just saying that their understanding of monotheism is there's only one God. And what's, and, and, and what's the um, implication of there only being one God? Well, if there's only one God, then all of those other gods are false. And, just, and even if it looks like they're triumphant, even if it looks like Zeus is winning because Greece just took over the world through Alexander the Great, even if it looks like Marduk is winning because Babylon just took over, or uh, who whatever, that they're not really in charge. That God is really in charge because he's the one true God. And so monotheism... Must imply that this one true God will eventually triumph. So include, within this affirmation is a necessary affirmation that, of eschatology. Because he's not going to sit back on his hands forever, you know. On the other hand, Jewish monotheism contained a strong assertion that the dualists were wrong. The material world was not the evil creation of an evil God. Jewish-style monotheism committed its adherence both to the effort to bring in the kingdom within the physical world and to the belief that those who died ahead of time would be raised physically to life when the great day came. Again, it's it's what he sees as implicit within an affirmation of the creator God. Notice Tom White doesn't say God chose Israel. He says the creator God. Those two things belong together. It wasn't a mistake when God created the heavens and the earth. And his whole plan of redemption is always to fulfill his good creation purposes. So unlike the Greeks of that time who, felt, who, who asserted, and a lot of Christian heretics over time, who asserted that the whole purpose of salvation is to escape from the material world, to escape from creation, so you can have unity with God, uh, Wright asserts, and I think correctly about Paul, that no, 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 that's not the biblical or the Pauline understanding at all. It's God redeeming his creation. It's not some sort of dualism between God and his creator and creation. It's God working his purposes in and through creation. This, this is a very, very strong theme within right. And um, a great gift to the church as well because I think this really is a recapturing of good biblical theology. Okay, that's monotheism. Here's election. Another another quote from Wright on this. Again, from what St. Paul really said, God took the initiative when He made a covenant with Judaism. God's grace thus precedes everything that people, specifically Jews, do in response. This is a uh, Tom Wright's summary of covenantal nomism, which we already talked about. He's actually discussing uh, E.P. Sanders at this point in this book. The Jew keeps the law out of gratitude. There's the gnomism part. He's been chosen. He keeps the law out of gratitude as the proper response to grace. Not, in other words, in order to get in the covenant people, but to stay in. Being in, in the first place, was God's gift. This scheme, E.P. Sanders famously labeled as covenantal gnomism from the Greek nomos, law. Keeping the Jewish law was the human response to God's covenantal initiative. So... And you'll notice here that covenantal and election go together, and nomism and law go together. So that's why I put it here like this. It's to express this middle stage here, election, and then with the help of the law, bringing in God's blessing. Well, there's that connection? I forgot, actually. labeled it there. And here's the, uh, here's the place of the law um, in Wright's view of Paul. The Shammaites, they were one of the uh, ph- ph- Pharisaic sects in the uh, first century. The, the Shammaites and the revolutionaries in general were eager to bring these prophecies to fulfillment, that's Old Testament prophecies, by their zeal for Torah, for the law. The one true God, Yahweh, was dishonored by the present state of things. His glory demanded that the pagans, idol worshippers as they were, would receive what they deserved For this to happen, Israel needed to keep Torah. Observing Torah would hasten the time of fulfillment. So there's the intermediate position of the law there. And then this comes from a a conference. This is a quote from a conference that actually happened um, in January, January the 1st. So this is fairly recent. There was this big debate. happened down in Monroe, um, Louisiana, at the Auburn Avenue uh, Presbyterian Church. A debate between... Dick Gaffin and Tom Wright. So this is a paraphrase, and it is a paraphrase. It came off a blog online, so it's, you know, it's not verbatim. But this is a paraphrase of one of the exchanges between Dick Gaffin, who's a professor up at Westminster, and Tom Wright. Gaffin says, If righteousness constitutes covenant fide- fidelity, what is the standard of fidelity or infidelity? Uh, this is anticipating our discussion of what righteousness means for Tom Wright. And listen to Wright's response. The obedience of faith. What is the sign of your being faithful to the covenant in the Old Testament? The Shema. Notice that he makes virtually no distinction between faith and obedience. Faith is obedience. Faithfulness is obedience. So neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament, according to someone like Tom Wright, would you make any distinction between um, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace? Works are always required. Grace always precedes those works. So you can see, this is this gets at his understanding of the law. The law does not earn anything. The law is simply the fruit of your prior covenantal relationship with God. And many of us would be uh, familiar with that whole notion from our, our understanding of the, the new covenant. Yeah. Well, right. that fit in with religious affections of Edwards. Well, t- Tom. The question is, how would that fit in with the religious affections? Uh, Tom Wright actually is is very reformed on that. He does believe that God's call precedes all of it. So, again, it's it's, it's the election. God calls you, transforms your heart, and then as a result of that, you you obey. But that obedience is the fruit of of what God has already done in you. It doesn't earn anything. See, the difference, I mean, a lot of people would say that, certainly reformed folks would say that in the New Covenant, what he's doing is taking that sort of notion and putting it in the Old Covenant as well so that the law doesn't become the root of your blessing. It becomes the fruit of the blessing. Mm-hmm. It seems that what well, comes to mind for me hear that David is the psalmist when he talks about the, the, how much he, loving the law and the law being a... Um, well, the idea of the law being written in his heart is yeah. in it as if, as if it was a gift. Not, yeah. just, not something that brought death, but yeah, in Psalm 119 is all about that. Psalm 119, the law is a gift, yeah. What we'll need to do, certainly the law is holy and just and good. Paul says that much in Romans 7. What we'll need to do next week or the week after is explore the dark side of the law, according to Paul. And, um, and see if this is a sufficient explanation of that dark side. Because Paul sees a dark side as well. Not because the law itself is bad, but because of, yeah, you take human flesh and you take the law and put it in a test tube and explosion of sin. Um, that's not the way Paul puts it, but that's my, my paraphrase of Romans 7. How would this be uh, contrasted with, I uh, write my dispensationalism this part? In every dispensation, my understanding is that it's always, the relationship with God is always based on faith. It's not based on works. Even in the Old Testament, the law was, was the basis of an interaction between God and his people, Israel. But it was not the basis, it was not the origination of their relationship. Yeah, um, well, Tom Wright. Tom Wright is no dispensationalist. He's at the other extreme. Um, dispensationalists tend to see huge discontinuity between. I mean, the, the the primary characteristic of dispensationalism is discontinuity between Israel and the church on a number of different levels. But but the church age itself becomes a parenthesis, so God can you know once once the end of the church age comes, we're raptured out, so God can resume dealing with his real temporal people, which would be Israel. Tom writes at the other extreme, dispensationalism sees discontinuity. He sees continuity. Nothing but continuity. And that's where that mono-covenantalism comes in. He sees even more continuity than traditional reform folks have seen. So whereas dispensationalism is all about the differences between Israel and church, Tom Wright would be all about the way in which Israel anticipates the church in, in many, many ways. Um dispensationalism has come back around I mean it used to be that some folks in classic dispensationalism actually be you know you would have thought that Israel was saved by works not by faith now you know they've they backed off of that but, but as a system it's, it's one that's marked by discontinuity rather than continuity can I have a in, he's real big on the idea of story and everything that, yeah and, and part of the thing that happens is, so when, he, when he's talking about this kind of stuff, he's talking obviously about the first century. Now you jump back six, you know, I mean, back in earlier in Israel's history, and this isn't all so obvious because a lot of stuff hadn't happened yet. So it's like kind of the general unraveling of it. I mean, right? I mean, it, I mean, it's God revealing His character through stuff that the stories that happened with Israel, I mean, and like He's trying well, to toss him out of the land, take they away, and then they disobey and He tosses him out of the land. Well, yes and no, but he would have, he, I mean, I'm sure Wright would say that that's, that's clear even from the covenant with Abraham. Okay. You know, that the, the, the intention was always, with Abraham, always envisaged. No, um, no, 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 I'm not saying that, but the Jews wouldn't have known that until later. I mean, you know, only in retrospect. Oh, I see, God, I see what you're God. saying. Uh, but even so, I think Wright would say, Wright confines himself to Paul's interpretation, but he would have said there's lots of warrant in Isaiah and other places that God was always intending to use Israel for the sake of the world. And even for that, you know, even for that matter. Yeah, and even for that matter, the very fact that that Israel is itself in biblical theology is seen as a kind of recapitulation of the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden, kicked out of the garden, and and the return of the Israelites to the land is as it were a kind of return to the promised land, a return to the Garden of Eden. And so, that any thinking Jew would have would have understood that this is just the down payment. The God of the whole world cannot be content with one piece of real estate in Palestine when the whole world is his. And the God of the whole world cannot be content with one ethnic people group when all the people belong to him. And even before Paul, there's, there's war in, in Qumran and other places, Jesus himself regularly applying the promises to Abraham of the land as being the whole world. So, um, so, so there was this common notion that the God of the whole world can't be content with just a piece of it. There's, there's an expansive quality to it, which is implied here. Yeah. So this isn't really too novel, really, for for Paul or for Jesus or the others. They're, they're they're in a pretty firm, I think, tradition by this point. When you see a covenantal nomism, so far it seems like there's biblical warrant in the old covenant in the sense that all the blessings and curses and conditional obedience have to do with being able to stay in the promised land. But the promised land promised, and yeah. Promise given. yeah, that sums up well, that perspective. I'll, I'll try to tweak that and in some ways, disagree with that understanding. But you just, you just summed up um, Tom Wright very, very well. Okay, um, moratorium on the questions for a few minutes because um, I see our time is running. Let's so just wait a few minutes and then we'll, we'll get back to questions. Um, yeah, I, and, and so just to finish the quote... We need to be unshackled from this works righteousness view of obedience. The gospel is a command. Notice he's saying the gospel is a command. I guess continuity between the old and the new. Bow the knee and obey this Lord. That is, submit to the statement that Jesus is Lord. It's an obedience, not meritorious, but the badge of believing. Merely the evidence of your faith, not the ground or the instrument of blessing. Okay, we'll have to critique that and talk more about that later. Whoops. Um, okay. Now eschatology. Jews like Saul of Tarsus were not interested in an abstract, timeless, ahistorical let should be together, system of salvation. They were not even primarily interested in, as we say today, going to heaven when they died. This is one of this is one of Tom Wright's great contributions. Everybody should wake up and pay very close attention to this because this is this is right on. They believed in the resurrection in which God would raise them all to share in the life of the promised, renewed Israel and renewed world. But that is very different from the normal Western vision of heaven as a place outside time, outside space, outside this world where you go and float around in an ethereal reality with wings and harps. That's rightly uh, rightly contested by right. The purpose of the covenant in the Hebrew Bible and in some subsequent writings was never simply that the Creator wanted to have Israel as a special people irrespective of the fate of the rest of the world. And this becomes Wright's understanding of Paul's critique of Judaism. Some Jews thought that it was all about us and failed to see that they were only intended to be instrumental in God's purposes for the entire world. And so when they began trying to hold on to God's blessings for themselves, Wright compares it to the person, the mailman, who thinks all the letters are for himself. I love that. love that way of putting it. I'm a mailman. The letters are for the world. You're supposed to deliver the letters. Oh, it's all for me. The purpose of the covenant was that through this means, the the Creator would address and save His entire world. Okay, that's the pattern of thought, which was redefined and changed... For Paul, by his Damascus, Road encounter with the crucified and resurrected Lord. This results in the gospel, which means good news, the proclamation of the crucified, risen King and Lord. And I see the projector is not doing good things with my dotted eyes. Okay. Let's talk about the crucified Lord, the crucified Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, um, Lord and King. ...as a way of getting into his thought. This is crucial. For Tom Wright... ...the history of Israel... ...comes to a focal point... ...in Christ. He fulfills... ...the story and the destiny of Israel. Everything comes to its focus on him. So all of the expectations for Israel... ...now come to their fulfillment... ...in the person of Israel's representative... ...the Messiah... ...the Lord Christ... And they come to their fulfillment in his crucifixion and in his resurrection and in this way, according to Tom Wright. It was the fulfillment of God's promise that through Abraham and his seed he would undo the evil in the world. God established his covenant with Abraham in the first place for this precise purpose. And always the fulfillment focuses on the death of Jesus, the covenant-fulfilling act. The moment when God executed judicial sentence on sin itself. The moment when God's astonishing love was unveiled in all its glory. This is fulfillment, not abrogation. Okay, there's that continuity, (laughs) unlike dispensationalism, that Israel's fate is summed up in its Messiah. The exile, which was largely where Israel had been left in the Old Testament, has now come to its climax in the crucifixion, where... The representative of Israel himself is exiled from God's land in death and exiled from God's presence. So talk about exile. The crucifixion becomes the climax of the exile. That's where the exile comes to, its, um, comes to its fulfillment. It was not irrelevant. It had reached its climax precisely in the death of Jesus, the representative Messiah of Israel. And this is crucial. And I think, I think that Tom Wright is right on here. Not only is this good Pauline theology, this is good Lucan theology, if we had time to talk about Acts 15. That the death of Christ is the exile of Israel, taken to its fulfillment. And the resurrection is the beginning of God's restoration. What has happened in Jesus is the first step in God restoring His world and His people to the glorified status that they were always intended to have. So, there's the crucifixion, here's writes own words here with the risen Jesus, makes that same thing clear. When Paul was faced with the fact of Jesus' resurrection, he concluded that the return from exile had in fact happened. This is very important to get because this is the linchpin of Paul's thought, according to Tom Wright. Exile had reached its height in Jesus' death, Now he had come through death, through the ultimate exile, and was set free not just from Greece or Rome, from Herod, Pilate, and Caiaphas, but from sin and death, the ultimate enemies. This meant that the age to come and the eschaton of Jewish expectation had already arrived, even though it didn't look like what Paul expected. So, when did the end times come? 1947, within our generation? No. The end times arrived... Almost two thousand years ago, at the death and the resurrection of Christ, the end times have begun. God's final judgment came, poured out upon Christ as the representative of his people. The restoration has begun, as Kip says, quoting one of your professors, who is that? That the dust the dust of earth is seated on the throne of heaven. I love that quote. So the restoration has already begun. And this is a redefinition of exile and restoration because it happens in a single person. This was the surprise. Is, is this kind of similar to Bart's double predestination of Christ and I mean, not it. Look, looking at you know, how um, Christ is condemned by God and chosen by you all at the same time? Is that... Possibly. Um, Possibly. There probably would be some parallels. I don't know what Bart does with the whole exile and restoration theme. I doubt he does as much with that. But yeah, certainly, certainly Jesus becomes the elect one. He becomes the chosen one. That may have some points of contact um, with Bart. Yeah, um, Wright really insists on this narrative way of understanding it. That it's the story of Israel that comes to its climax. And I, I'm not sure that Bart so does that. Recapitulate, recapitulate he recapitulates Israel, which and Israel is a recapitulation of Adam and Eve. Right. You see, they see it's the same. And the exile from the garden then really anticipates the story of the exile of Israel. And so now you see that that which was the problem in the Old Testament has now found its resolution. When will Israel come back from exile? This is important for Tom Wright. He he believes that in the first century, most Jews believed that they were still in exile. That even though they were back in the land, okay, yes, yes, they had some sort of political restoration. It didn't count for much because the glorious Old Testament promises clearly weren't fulfilled. I'll talk more about Daniel Daniel's interpretation of that in just a minute. But, um, yeah, the crucifixion is the exile. The resurrection is the beginning of the restoration. And then King Jesus. There are many Jewish texts in which the historical sequence of faults, an answer to the question, how will God be true to his promises to Abraham, reaches its answer and fulfillment um, as in the son of David, the Messiah. Okay, it's all storyline for Tom Wright. This is the key to unlocking the thought of Paul. It begins with the Abrahamic Covenant, moves then to, unfortunately, exile and restoration. And how do you know that you've reached restoration? When the Davidic King is reigning. So, so, so the climax of the fulfillment of the, Davidic, um, of the uh, Abrahamic Covenant is very closely bound up with the restoration of the king. So, in terms of the storyline, it begins with the Abrahamic covenant, proceeds through exile, comes to restoration, but restoration involves the restoration of the king and the kingdom. So, it's not surprising that Paul then would have this emphasis on Christ as the king because that's what happens when you get to the promised land. You have kingship waiting for you in the promised land. Um, central to his argument is the idea of the seed, the true seed of Abraham, the fulfillment of the promises Within his overall argument about Abraham, Paul is operating with an implicit royal theology and exegesis. Christos, which means Messiah, can best be explained in terms of incorporation into the people of the Messiah. So Christ, as the Messiah, is the representative of the people. So the the Messiah, a, a king always summed up his people, he always represented his people. So when David in the Old Testament sins by counting the people, the census... Who gets, to get, who gets punished? The people. I mean, it's almost as though they're interchangeable. That seems very strange to us. But it's that, that pattern of thinking that, that would be here. Christ is Himself the summation of His people. He can represent His people. They're summed up in Him. And then lastly, Jesus is Lord. We won't say too much about this because of, because of time. But this is a fascinating line of thought. Wright has increasingly come to see not only the Old Testament background of Paul's proclamation of the gospel, but also the imperial background, how it would have been heard in its Greco-Roman context. Now, he always says that it was the Old Testament and Hebrew background that is determinative. But that being said, he says, look, it has all kinds of resonances. The proclamation of Jesus is Lord has lots of resonances which we need to understand in the first century because everyone was saying that Augustus is Lord, Caesar is Lord, whether that's Augustus or Tiberius or Caligula or Nero, whoever, whoever. So it's, it's very subversive to be, begin proclaiming Jesus is Lord, and that's what's, what's here. The gospel is basically saying in a very politically subversive way, Jesus is Lord not Caesar. Paul's language is borrowed not only from Isaiah, but also from the imperial cult. In several texts from the Roman Empire, we find formulaic phrases referring to the emperor's accession in which the sequence of thought runs as follows. Such and such a person, Augustus, Nero, or whoever, has been a good servant of the state. Perhaps by winning some great victory, we therefore hail him as our lord and entrust ourselves to him to be our savior. We hail him as Kyrios. And trust him to be our soter. We hail him as Lord and trust him to be our Savior. This um this has enormous potential for unpacking what the gospel means in a first century proclamation. Think about it. When we say gospel, sometimes we don't well, proclamation of the gospel is perhaps you ought to try Jesus as your Savior. It's almost a consumer market-oriented mentality. There are lots of religious options, and if you try this particular religious option, you might like it. And here comes Paul saying, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He'll be invading shortly with his armies. (laughs) He's offering pardon in advance of his invasion, and should you receive the pardon and ally yourself with him now before he actually invades... When he comes, you will be considered his ally, and he will raise you to kingship. The alternative is to be under the wrath of the king. It's not some sort of religious option. It's it's an announcement that a, a new king is on the throne, and he'll be invading. Talk about the resonance that would have had in the Roman world, when it made all the difference in the world, whether you were on Mark Antony's side or on Octavian's side. You better choose right. And those who didn't choose right didn't end up doing very well. Most of the time. So, again, uh, it's, it's helpful to remember what, what the gospel is. It's not, it's not so much um, an invitation to an array of uh, sort of buffet-style choices. It's, it's a command. Will you heed the command? Jesus is Lord. Repent and believe. And uh, Wright very helpfully emphasizes that. So now let's talk about the way in which everything is different now. And here we have a redefinition at every level. A redefinition of eschatology, a redefinition of election, and a redefinition of monotheism and this is what we'll spend the rest of our time discussing, in light of the Christ event, in light of the death and resurrection of Christ and Paul's encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, how are these three fundamental elements of Jewish theology redefined? Yeah. I just uh, want to go back to what you talked about before. Does Ray recognize or emphasize the other worldly of Christ's kingdom? But Christ is kingdom, not of this world. He says, the Pipilot. Pilate, Pilate's going to execute for just that." Uh, yeah, but his authority is not of this world at the moment. But the idea is that when Jesus goes to heaven, heaven itself understood as a part of creation. And that part of creation, which will be shortly coming to earth. In other words, it's not the notion of Christ coming and then we all go to be with Christ and he takes us to this otherworldly place. No, it's Christ actually invading with his heavenly reality. Heaven itself understood as already a dimension of glorified reality, coming here to glorify the rest of God's creation. So God has begun something in heaven and begun something in Christ, which will be realized in its fullness here. We're, we're sort of the outskirts of the empire that haven't yet been completely subjected to, to the sun. And, and, um, and Christians represent a colony in that, um, in that rebellious part of the empire. But the Son is coming from, from that other kingdom. He's coming from that other kingdom not to sort of beam us up, Scotty, sort of get us out of this so that the world can explode, but he's coming precisely in order to transform this part of, of the created reality, make himself king over it, and raise us to kingship with him over it. Very, very different notion than the kind of Gnostic understanding that a lot of Christians have, which is the whole purpose of salvation is to escape reality and to go to heaven. In this understanding, heaven is simply a temporary place where you go, and by the way, a material space and time place that you go, while you're waiting for the invasion, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when all of his purposes are truly revealed. And Tom Wright would argue from Paul and others that this was always the biblical understanding, that our understanding has been very, very much influenced by Gnostic understandings in which the whole point was to escape materiality and creation. Yeah, Buddhist, Gnostic, um, uh, and, and also, well, there was a poll recently, I guess. Um, two-thirds of Christians, um, you know, believe that the resurrection is not bodily. I mean, it, it doesn't have anything to do with his body in the tomb. That's all part and parcel of not, under, of not understanding that God's purpose is to redeem bodies, creation. To pull the plug and it's because the body is nothing, let's escape the body. Yeah. To go to what's real. Yeah, that would be yeah, exactly yeah. right. Instead of saying that the body is, this is precisely what God intends to redeem, and we can anticipate this here yeah. for the body by, you know, so in Romans chapter eight, all talk about creation. That's actually God's creation under redemption, actually. Absolutely. And in Romans eight, you have the revelation of the sons of God, where creation is waiting on tiptoe for us to be revealed, so that itself, that it will be transformed. Romans eight is one of the clearest places, probably the clearest place. in and Pauline theology, where you see this comprehensive transformation of you. That's a great passage to mention. Okay, moratorium again for just a few minutes. Sorry. <laughs> Unless you want to give me two hours. <clears throat> um, okay, eschatology redefined. So you've got eschatology. Now, in light of the Christ event, what does this mean for, um, for, our, 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 for our understanding of God's purposes for the world? Well, First of all, there's a fulfillment in the middle of time. The Jewish notion was, we wait to the very end, then God comes, there's a final judgment, there's a restoration of the world, and we get resurrection bodies. It doesn't happen by stages. Early Christians were compelled by the resurrection to believe that God was going to proceed by stages, precisely because they saw it before their very eyes. Here was a guy with a glorified resurrected body, and the rest of us don't have glorified resurrected bodies. And moreover, he left. Acts 1, they're like, okay, when's the kingdom going to be restored? And he's like, well, n- never mind. That's not your business. And uh, so he leaves. I'm so like, okay, I guess he's the first fruits that we'll be following along afterwards. And that's precisely the notion that, um, that this eschatology has actually happened in the middle of time. We've been in the end times now for 2,000 years. That's the idea. The final judgment came, in one sense, when it was poured out upon Christ in the crucifixion. The restoration came in the beginning sense, in the resurrection. So the fulfillment in the middle of time, waiting then for the rest of us to join Christ in that restoration glory. And then finally, uh, second, the eschatological purpose of the covenant is achieved, which is the inclusion of the Gentiles. That is to be a blessing to the world. Not just, it's not just something for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles too. That's now been achieved. So if you look at the Jewish timetable, the whole purpose of the Jews was always to be a blessing to the entire world. Well, let's see here. The exile has happened. The restoration has happened. The king has been enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Okay, time for the inclusion of the Gentiles. That's where we are. That's not just Paul, just by way of side note. That's Luke. That's Acts 15. That's James' argument in Acts 15. When he quotes from Amos 9, go look this up later, we don't have time to look at it now, but when he quotes from Amos 9, it's basically like, look, the Ten of David has been restored. Talk about dispensationalism. That's not something happening in the future. That's something that's happened already in Jesus Christ. And because the king has been restored, now the Gentiles, the Gentiles should be included. Because it's the end times. And Gentiles were always meant to be included in the end times. And, our Lord was already doing that, so. and he was already anticipating it. Yeah, he was already anticipating that uh, eschatological uh, purpose of of the covenant. This is huge. This is one of Wright's really, really clear contributions to our understanding of the relationship between the old and the new and and the way in which Christ serves um, as, as the linchpin. Election is also redefined. God's people are marked now by faith, not by the works of the law. For right, he sees faith and works of the law simply as badges of covenant membership. I'm going to debate that a little bit later on. But for right, they're badges of covenant membership. They just simply show that you belong there. If you want to put it in medical terms, they're the symptom of your condition, not the cause. If you've got little red bumps. That does, that's not what causes your mumps or measles or whatever. That's simply a symptom. So the symptom of your covenant membership is going to be not faith, not works of the law. Why not? Because works of the law are exclusivistic. Works of the law, circumcision, Sabbath, food laws were always intended to separate the Jews from Gentiles. That's inappropriate now. So now we won't have a people of God marked by the works of the law. We'll have a people of God marked by faith. And that's the reason. It's, a, it's an ecclesiological reason. It has to do with defining who the people of God is. It has nothing to do with legalism, uh, according to Wright. When he... Sure. And Wright would say it's, 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 faith, it's faith, faithfulness. The faith is always understood in an active, obedient sense. It's not just—it's not—it's not just mental assent, and it's not even just trust. It's—it's it's also obedience, and so he, he, he merges those two concepts. Through. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and right, right, would certainly see a very important place for baptism here. Israel's failure was to see the temporary function of the law. Israel's failure was not legalism; it was ethnocentrism. It was, it, was, it, was, it was taking those blessings and keeping them for themselves. Being the mailman and thinking all the letters are for you. Okay? That was Israel's failure. So he redefines Israel's failure. Election has been redefined. It's not now Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles alike. Not now marked by works of the law but marked by faith because faith is inclusive. The works of the law were exclusivistic. And then monotheism is redefined as well. And this is... Um, This is one of Wright's most helpful um, contributions, perfectly orthodox here. There are people, and James Dunn would be one of them, uh, who's another British scholar, who deny that that Paul, or for that matter, any of the New Testament writers, really believed in the divinity of Christ, Uh, with the exception of, of, of John. It's pretty clear in John 1. But that Paul really didn't have a notion of the divinity of Christ. Against that line of thinking, Tom Wright is wonderful. He's worth reading for this reason alone. Read what he has to say about 1 Corinthians 8, which I'll summarize for you just ever so briefly. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul takes that Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and he sticks Jesus right in the middle of it. Um, So in the course of arguing that the Corinthians have the right to um, eat food sacrificed to idols... Paul being the theologian that he is. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 8. Okay. Although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. referring now to pagan gods. Um, Verse uh, 5 of of 1 Corinthians 8. Um, There are a lot of pagan gods slash demons. Yet for us, there is one God. And as soon as a Jew in the first century hears one God... Shema. Ding, 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 ding. Shema comes to mind. There is one God, here's the gloss, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, the gloss, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He takes the Shema, pulls it apart and says, the God part of it refers to the Father and the Lord part of it refers to Christ. So the very Jewish affirmation of monotheism, the text, the creedal text in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, Paul takes and says, God is the Father, the Lord is Jesus Christ. And this is early. Paul, Paul's writings are the earliest writings in the New Testament. I, I kind of look forward to Mormons coming by the house now. <laughs> we've, we've had that discussion once or twice. Let me, take you to, let me take you to 1 Corinthians 8. And then every time you read a Pauline epistle and it begins with blessings from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not just a throwaway. That's Paul. Once again, reflecting on the Shema. God, the Father, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul has the highest possible Christology right from the very beginning. And Wright is wonderful on that, He's, which is in this book of what St. Paul really said. Does Philippians 2 and Colossians 1. So in three different passages in Paul, he shows how Jesus Christ is at the heart of the Godhead. In, in first century Jewish terms. Now we have later credo formulations, which are good. Um... But, but but Wright shows how Paul would have conceived it. So that we don't have to agree with Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code that they just got around in the 4th century to decide that Jesus was divine. That's pure bunk. And Wright's wonderful about showing that. So Wright's worth reading on that alone. Um, these, these second three verses I have here, Galatians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 8, are all places where the Holy Spirit equally is seen to be divine. So again, Paul's our earliest writer. If you find it in Paul... That's um, within a generation of Christ. That's early. And that's the divinity of Christ, the divinity of the Spirit. You may not find the word Trinity in the New Testament, but it's clearly there. And, um, And Paul shows how monotheism has been redefined. And unfortunately, later on in Judaism, monotheism was further redefined because then they took it as a doctrine to combat Christianity with. Then it becomes something that's about the inner being of God in a way of denying the divinity of Christ. But that wasn't what monotheism was originally about. And um, only later did it come to be used in that way. Okay, so um, to sum up some of this, uh, for, for Wright, we have a long story in search of an ending. For the majority of Jews of Paul's period, theirs was a long story in search of an ending. The story has somehow got stuck. They are still enslaved to the pagans. They are still in exile. Yeah. Very, very brief comment about uh, monotheism. Doesn't that also sort of lay waste to the whole uh thesis? The what the thesis? oh thesis yeah. and Harnack mm-hmm. and, and yeah, basically all German with, with, with the philosophy of the 19th century. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Paul uh, uh, Wright is very good in this respect. He... um He doesn't ignore the uh, the Hellenic um, and the Greco-Roman context and shows how Paul would have been heard in that context. Son of God would be another great example. But he's always very careful about, well, he he observes Albert Schweitzer's dictum. You know, why walk a mile to to water your garden when when your garden is right beside a stream? There's this stream, this Judaism. You know, you can just take buckets and water straight from Judaism. And he always goes there first and then shows how it would have heard in in, in the larger world. But yeah, you're right. Uh, there's there's no need to explain this in, in categories, Hellenic or or, um, or Roman categories. Okay, um, one thing that's very characteristic of right, Israel is still in exile, still understood it to be in an exile. And it, he's got a great argument for this, which I think is hard to combat. He says Daniel 9 suggests that notwithstanding the passing of the requisite 70 years, there's going to be much more 70 times 7. Okay, remember the scene? Daniel's praying in Daniel 9. He says, Oh Lord, thank God, the 70 years is almost up. As Jeremiah prophesied, we'll soon, you promised that we'll soon be restored to our land. So he prays, Do this for the sake of your name. Beautiful, beautiful prayer. Then Gabriel comes and says, Oh, by the way, Daniel, um, it's not just going to be 70. You've got lots more to pay. It's going to be 70 times 7. Now it's true that at the end of 70 years, they did go back to their land. But Gabriel's point was, the really real end of the exile doesn't come for 70 times 7, which is why in the first century a lot of Jews were counting to figure out why they rebelled against Rome, likely. Because they are counting, I think the 70 times 7 has got to be up. (laughs) God's got to do something. They missed how it happened. But that's why there was so much political and spiritual ferment in the first century. Because you have this notion that, yes, okay, we're out of exile, but God works in stages. Boy, does He ever work in stages. And the final stage of our end from exile has not yet come. That's the problem in the first century. The end of slavery was seen in terms of a new exodus. God would again rescue Israel. This was a warning to all the pagans and comfort for Israel. This is to be God's future. God will come into His own, and that day Yahweh will be king of all the earth. For Paul, all this had now come to pass in the Messiah Jesus. Paul's eschatology remains deeply Jewish with a retelling of the same key text. Through his high Christology, Paul details how God's own future has burst in. This is to be God's future. All those passages in the Old Testament where God brings it in. Through his high Christology, Paul details how God's own future has burst in. Through his incorporative Christology, He describes how Israel's future has burst in. Now notice something. If you're careful with right, you'll see the pattern again and again. Through his high Christology, God's own future is burst in. There's the high Christology monotheism defined. God's own future is burst in. Eschatology is redefined. God's future. God's future in Jesus has burst in because Jesus is God. So his future is burst in. See how he does that? And then when he says this, he says, In corporative Christology, Israel's future is burst in. Well, in corporative Christology is the redefinition of election. Jesus is the elect one in whom God's people are now being formed. And the future is burst in. So, if you read right carefully, you'll see again and again and again, he's always talking about monotheism, election, and eschatology. He just says it in a zillion different ways. That's the underlying pattern again and again and again. Okay, in the five minutes we have left, um, let, me, let me finish up my point and then we'll take 30 seconds for questions. Uh, we'll, we'll try to take a few minutes. But let me just show you something quickly here. Because I want to locate on the map where justification is. It's right here. Right under here. So this is where we're going to be in Paul's, in Paul's theology, according to Tom Wright. And, and Tom Wright mentions three things. Covenant membership, law, court, and eschatology is the three metaphors that control Paul's understanding of justification. Now, look in. This is right. Covenant membership is nothing but election redefined because election and covenant are virtually synonyms. So God's people, now Jews and Gentiles... Waiting for God's vindication in a law or court setting at the end of time. There's eschatology. So that's the expectation. It's the story being told all over again. God's people waiting for God's vindication at the end. And that is the setting then for the righteousness of God and justification. Just to anticipate where we're heading here, righteousness of God is not God's imputed righteousness, but God's faithfulness as a judge keeping his promises and vindicating his people as he's promised to do, and justification is God's people being declared to be his people despite everyone believing that they're just fools uh, for believing in this Yahweh. So election redefined, there's the covenant membership. The law court is God's people being vindicated them by God at the end. So Paul, uh, Tom Wright is very consistent. There's a certain pattern here to his thought which you can sort of unwrap again and again. And this, this is my master chart which sort of tries to unpack that.